20th Century Geek is part of Britpod Scene, a network of uniquely British podcasts that's always growing. Check out BritpodScene.com or follow Britpod Scene on Twitter to find out more. I'm Scott Weatherly. Welcome to 20th Century Geek. Before we get into the show proper, you may have noticed something different about the opening. I've recently accepted to join a network of fantastic British podcasts. Please check these out by googling Brit Pod Scene or checking out more information on Twitter either through at Brit Pod Scene or hashtag Brit Pod Scene. The network includes some of the best, most unique and entertaining podcasts coming out of Britain today. It's absolutely fantastic. Okay, today's episode is going to be broken into two parts. The first is a brief history and a look at the legacy of one of the most influential horror writers of the 20th century. The second is an interview with modern horror writer, author of the Autumn and Hater series, as well as several other excellent novels, David Moody. And speaking of David, he has agreed to donate one of his novels for a giveaway. So stick around at the end of the show to find out how to win that book. Okay, now, on with the horror. If you have listened to previous shows, you'll know that I am a big horror movie fan. I really enjoy the classics and even appreciate bad films. Mike, my usual cohort, and I are going to be covering two of our favourites in the September alternate commentaries, American Wealth in London and Return of the Living Dead. Horror is a genre that was popular in film as soon as film became viable. The early silent films such as Nosferatu in 1922 and then the Universal Monster movies of the 1930s. These are awesome and I will no doubt cover these on a future episode, I promise. However, on this show, I'm going to have a look at a medium that has been around a lot, lot longer. The Horror Novel There are classic books outside my remit, such as Dracula, Frankenstein and A Christmas Carol. These set the stall for gothic horror and a sense of the Victorian age. With the dawn of the 20th century, however, and the wars, advances and social changes that it brought, horror novels went through a major shift. More to represent modern people's fears. In the opening of this episode, I am going to focus on a a writer that has shaped horror writing throughout the 20th century, despite being almost completely unknown during his own life. The biggest advance at the turn of the century that drove a growth in horror writing was the ability to produce cheap pulp magazines. These would play a huge role in the development of so many other genres as well, as writers had to be inventive and to produce exciting stories week on week. The need to keep things fresh resulted in a lot of new ideas being thrown out into the public domain. Some of them were rubbish and so have fallen by the wayside. Others, though, have thrived and have become a mainstay of horror fiction. The name that has risen to the top of the creators from this period and the writer that I am going to present is Howard Philip Lovecraft, the Picasso of horror literature. Born in 1890 in Providence, Rhode Island, where he spent most of his life, Lovecraft was a loner who suffered a series of childhood illnesses that kept him out of school until he was eight. 
It is believed that one of the symptoms of these illnesses was sleep terrors and paralysis, which would provide the fuel for his later works. While he may not have been in school, he was a voracious reader with a love of chemistry and astronomy. By the time he was in his late teens, his family had fallen into poverty and he started to suffer from a nervous condition. By 20, his condition resulted in him becoming a shut-in for almost five years, during which time he started to write in binge periods. While he produced reams of poetry and short stories, he did not seek publication or any social interaction. One of his primary sources of entertainment were the popular pulp magazines. His displeasure at the quality of the content finally encouraged him to reach out to the outside world and complain about the crappy content. The strength and passion of this debate around the issue in the letter pages caught the attention of Edward Dars, who invited Lovecraft to join the United Amateur Press Association, which he did in 1914. The new contact encouraged Lovecraft to start submitting poems and essays for publication. It was for this group that his first short story, The Alchemist, was first published in 1916. He was finally professionally published in 1922. By this time, he had become very well known within the writing community, although not by the public at large. Despite prolific writing and publication up to his final days, this is how it would remain until well after his death. During his life, Lovecraft relied heavily on the support of the women around him. Initially his mother who he lived with and cared for him during his years of reclusion, she eventually died in a mental institution in 1921. The loss hit Lovecraft hard and left a hole that would soon be filled by another woman, his soon-to-be wife, Sonia Green. Sonia saw potential in Lovecraft and encouraged him to move away from Providence and agreed to financially support him while he progressed his writing. This worked for Lovecraft as he was able to meet other writers and was able to let his abilities and imagination grow. However, the relationship between Sonia and Lovecraft was not standard, especially not for the time. Due to her work, she had to travel extensively, leaving Lovecraft at home to his own devices. During this period, finances became difficult, and this time can be seen as strongly contributing to Lovecraft's nativist and racist views. Eventually, the financial difficulties required their return to Providence, and it was on home turf that he remained until he died in 1937 of cancer. It was not a glamorous life. In many cases, it was a hard life. However, it was a life that would produce some of the most influential stories of the early 20th century. There is a final element to mention about the man H.P. Lovecraft, which I do not want to delve into too deeply, simply because I would rather this show be more about his work. Even by the standard of his day, Lovecraft harboured racist and bigoted ideas and offered to share them in his numerous correspondences. It was a fundamental part of who he was, and traces of it can be found in his stories. Some have suggested that these ideas were a product of his time and the difficulties he had later in life. This may be the case, but it is not possible to condone or ignore this part of the story. Therefore, for the sake of making my point regarding his literary output, I have worked to try and separate the man from his work. He was more than misguided in his small-minded worldviews, but that does not diminish the effect his works of fiction have had on modern horror. His work is often discussed as consisting of three stages. The earliest was clearly influenced by the writer Lovecraft admired, Edgar Allan Poe. This evolved in a Lord Dunsey-inspired dream cycle, 
And finally, the work for which he is most noted and celebrated, his Cthulhu mythos stories. While it is possible to highlight works that define each of these stages in his evolution, it is just as easy to highlight many distinctive ideas and entities that are most commonly associated with his later works being introduced in the earlier stories, such as the 1917 story, Dagon. It is because of this that there is such a clear and defined style, mood and structure in word and theme that go into creating the distinctive Lovecraft tales. For example, while influenced by earlier classical writers, Lovecraft's work does not contain any of the classical monsters or supernatural elements. There are no werewolves, vampires or ghosts. His fears have moved from the historic to the cosmic, and our inability to comprehend the infinite universe and what lurks in its darkest corners. The story that most will know and epitomises Lovecraftian cosmic horror is The Call of Cthulhu. The tale of the uncovering of an extra-dimensional being that has been on Earth for as long as the Earth has been around. One of the Elder Gods. He lies sleeping, waiting in the deepest depths of the ocean. If he is woken, he will once again walk the Earth, and humanity will be destroyed by his hand. Cthulhu is the centre of the story, and the name given for the mythos. A giant humanoid creature with bat wings and the head of an octopus. But he is not the only and most likely not the worst god or creature hidden in the ancient cosmos. I would also mention one of my own personal favourites, At the Mountains of Madness, the story of an expedition to the frozen wastes of Antarctic that uncovers evidence of a lost civilization and several preserved inhabitants that may have had some interaction with early humans. While both of these lay out superb tales of horror in mood and atmosphere, the real hallmark for me is the continued unknown. At the end of each of these, while the events have been horrific, there is a continued unease and tension, and so many questions are left unanswered. In my opinion, this is the real strength of the majority of Lovecraft's work, shining a light on the arrogance of society and the fact that we are no more than toddlers stumbling around in the dark, exclaiming that we know what we are doing while larger, horrifying entities watch on just out of reach. These are two of the best, but by no means provide a full insight into Lovecraft's scope of work. The stories cover both large and small scale terrors, however, to list or review more of Lovecraft's work would be redundant, as, as there is so much to cover and it would take more time than I have in this show. What I would say is that his work is available to be consumed in so many different forms. There are a number of beautifully designed hardback books collecting his completed works, as well as several paperback series. However, if you do not want to get dropped into the deep end, and who could blame you, who knows what is lurking there, you could try out some of the free samples of his work that are available online in many different places. I would actually recommend the podcast, The Complete Works of H.P. Lovecraft. Each episode comprises of one of his stories being read out in a fabulously atmospheric way. I highly recommend this podcast, and a link to it will be left in the show notes. The main point that I wanted to make, rather than review the works of Lovecraft, was to demonstrate how he has influenced modern horror in all mediums, not just novels. So where to start? In many ways, the easiest one to start with is also the most complex to define. Earlier in the show I referred to Lovecraft's subgenre as cosmic horror, but this phrase provides too small a name for the scope of what he wanted to get across. 
Let's start with a great quote describing the basis and work from there. Erica Henderson, creator of the Baby's First Mythos book, explained it as, Lovecraft made a world where humans are alone, floating on a rock in a terrifying larger universe that we cannot possibly comprehend because our time in it has been so short and we are so insignificant compared to the horrors from the Cthulhu mythos. The basis then is the fact that there is so much to the infinite universe that we do not know and could not defend against. The easy spots of the series that are directly influenced by Lovecraft and his ideas, such as the Hellboy comics, Joe Hill's Lock and Key series and Alan Moore's Neonomicon. However, if you look closer at these and the Lovecraftian mythos, you realise that the first Ghostbusters film is heavily Lovecraftian. Ancient gods reaching out and coming to our dimension to ruin humanity. In fact, in the real Ghostbusters cartoon, the Ghostbusters actually face off against Cthulhu himself. Sticking with movies, consider Sam Raimi's Evil Dead. Not only are the Deadites excellent Lovecraftian demons, he makes direct use of Lovecraft's lore by bringing the most notable grimoire from Lovecraft. The Necronomicon, first mentioned in the 1924 short story The Hound. Also, John Carpenter is clearly a fan and influenced by Lovecraft. 1982's The Thing is a fantastic horror in its own right, but it is also an excellent homage to a mythos story, including an ambiguous ending with more questions than answers. His later, underrated 1994 film, In the Mouth of Madness, is littered with Lovecraftian ideas and themes. And thinking of mythos movies, how can I fail to mention Ridley Scott's Prometheus, which when boiled down, this is pretty much the same story as At the Mountains of Madness, set in space rather than the Antarctic. Even the base premise of Joss Whedon's Cabin in the Woods, of sacrificing a group of young stereotypes to satisfy ancient gods, is a great twist on Lovecraft. Moving away from films, Stephen King has used Lovecraftian mythology themes in his work repeatedly. In it, the real menace to the town of Derry is an interdimensional being that sleeps for 30 years at a time, only to awake to feed. His short story The Mist could have been taken directly from a Lovecraftian collection. To take it further, his Dark Tower series is filled with Lovecraftian lore, mixing beautifully with his own creations. What about Clive Barker? So many of his books consist of interdimensional or otherworldly beings or locations being revealed to normal people with horrific consequences. From the Cenobites or Weave World to the Magic of the Art, each author has put his own spin on a template and foundation that was laid by Lovecraft. The second thing that I want to raise is the fact that Lovecraft was not protective of his property or his subgenre. In fact, he would openly let people use his themes as well as his characters, locations and key items. The ones that can most commonly be found are the Miskatonic University, based in the town of Arkham. The university is first mentioned in the Herbert West Reanimator from 1922, and is referenced and used in a number of his other stories. It is the faculty members and the students of this university that have so many unfortunate run-ins with the horrors of the wider universe and the beyond. First and foremost, I have to acknowledge that, yes, the asylum in the DC Comics Batman universe is named for the Lovecraft town of Arkham. Just one more tentacle reaching out to touch the modern world. The fact that Lovecraft was so open with his creations 
meant that not only were they referenced in his own work, but also by other period writers, such as Robert E. Howard, August Derleth, and even Psycho's writer Robert Bloch. The result was twofold. First, we have the creation of the Cthulhu shared universe that is still being populated today. So many of his own stories are all clearly take place in the same universe and build on that universe's strict mythos. Within the stories, the references could be as small as a person's name or an item seen in a room, an early version of Easter eggs, if you will, all the way to directly referencing events of the other stories. Of course, Robert E. Howard created his own universe in which to play with Conan, but the use of a shared universe seems such an obvious choice to Lovecraft that it was barely a choice at all. Looking at the modern fictional landscape, let's forget the Marvel shared cinematic universe. We know that Marvel and DC have been populating their own comic universes since the 1960s. I'm not saying that these are directly inspired by the early writings of Lovecraft or Howard. The Lovecraftian type universe is more subtle. If we look again at Stephen King as the prime example, he has built a shared universe for his own horror in Castle Rock, the region of Maine first mentioned in The Dead Zone, and has appeared in stories again and again up to his recent works, Doctor Sleep and Revival. King has populated his fictional region with people and locations that will pop up again and again. Shawshank Prison, for example, is mentioned in over a dozen of King's works. Not wanting to repeat myself, but more recently, Clive Barker has extended his own work into a shared universe. The character Harry Damore appeared as a character in the novel The Scarlet Gospels, bridging the gap between the world of the Cenobites and the world of the art from the great and secret show. These subtle shared universes, not requiring you to consume everything that exists in them to form an understanding or enjoyment, is the crux of what Lovecraft created. The universe was the tool to explore the ideas, not the point of the stories. There's a final thing that I want to mention that depending on your point of view, is either fantastical fiction or hard, terrifying fact. There is a large part of the alien abduction and ancient alien conspiracy that is loaded with Lovecraftian lore. The story The Whisperer in the Darkness from 1931 describes how a man coming from Miskatonic University ends up at an isolated farmhouse, which is stalked every night by agents of an alien race. The elements of the story of how these beings stalk the house and the effects of, on the protagonist have been played out again and again by alleged contactees, usually in the northern United States. The baseline story has been added to and shifted over the years, but between 1931 and the early 1950, where we get the first widely publicised tales of alien contacts and abductions, the basic story remains pretty much the same. We can therefore extrapolate that all alien contact and abduction accounts come from Lovecraft, originally. Further to this, there is a conspiracy that alleges that there is a race of aliens that have been living under the Antarctic for millennia, controlling the human race through psychic intervention and manipulation of everything from Hollywood, big business and the new media. This is crazy to some and explanation for everything to others. This is just one story. There are also theories about ancient cave paintings and the hieroglyphics that suggest aliens have been visiting Earth for thousands of years, Stargate style. This idea was originally proposed in 1919, but did not get real traction or attention until the full theory was covered by the Eric von Dinkin book Chariots of the Gods in 1968. 
It is argued by Jason Colavetto in his book, The Cult of Alien Gods, Lovecraft and the Extraterrestrial Pop Culture, that this theory and so many other alien theories are directly linked and inspired by Lovecraft's work. In summary, I think that it is clear to say that Lovecraft is the Picasso of horror literature. Living in relative obscurity during his life, and despite his own personal views, is rightfully celebrated for, the co for his contributions and works he created. He is one of the key foundation stones of all modern horror, tentacles of his work reaching out to so many areas and artists. As a wrap-up, I would like to end with a quote from Neil Gaiman. H.P. Lovecraft built the stage on which most of the last century's horror fiction was performed. As doomed as any of his protagonists, he put a worldview in words that has spread to infect the world. You need to read him. He's where the darkness starts. So let's move to modern day. And thanks to Lovecraft for all his efforts, but we can now move on and we're going to transfer an interview I recently had the great pleasure to record with novelist David Moody. Yes. And, so, and I've just I've just got to say to start with, I apologise for the autumn film. It it was not it wasn't my fault. Okay. <laughs> well, well, I'll mention it again later. It's interesting. Um, That's and, one uh, word for it. That's a diplomatic word for it. Yeah. Well, what what I will say is, I mean, I think you know, we we will start with this then, really, because as a um, as a horror fan, you know, you you sort of especially with things like Netflix and and Shudder and and Prime and yeah. all those things. You go, oh, that's new, that's interesting, and you give it a go. And because I think horror, people think horror is easy to do in film, you have to that's wade true. through an awful lot of crap. Yeah, yeah. Um, so compared to some I've seen, it's actually not bad. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, that's fair enough, that's fair enough. Yeah, but it was, it was interesting. I actually quite enjoyed some of it. Um, unfortunately, I only started autumn, the, I started reading the book um, a couple of nights ago, so I haven't really been able to catch up on that. I mean, I read Hater... <laughs> Um, cool. But I, I'm 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 getting through autumn now as well, which is good. Okay. So I'll be I'll be interested to see how what the differences are. Yeah, um, budget predominantly. Yeah. <laughs> they, they, they tried really hard, but you know it, it didn't quite work out. But at well, least they did it, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's, it's there, it's out there, which is good. And that's you on the cover, is it? Yeah, bizarrely. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I went over and uh, spent a week on on the set. Yeah. And, uh, just. Got to play zombie one night and beat up Dexter Fletcher, which was great. I'm actually in in, in the film. I don't know if you got to sort of bit in the um, when the generators in the shed and, yes. and he go Dexter Fletcher goes to turn it off. That, yes. that's me. You know Dexter Fletcher outside. Uh, that's good. That's, that's cool. That's a good fanboy moment. But it is. In the night. Yeah. That's quite cool. I mean, yeah. I mean, I was actually looking for your cameo, and I, I wondered yeah. if you I was going to ask if you were one of the zombies. So that sort of answers that question. There you go. Sorry, I'm kind of ruining the interview here. No, no, not at all. No, it's good. It's going to be, it's uh, it's all good information. Um, you know, it's all about the horror horror genre and that sort of thing. I mean, that's what I'm trying to do for this sort of theme. Is um, you know, it's, it's sort of everyone does horror in October. Yeah. So I thought I'll I'll do it in July. Um, just to do something a bit different. Um, Some poor have to do it all year round, you know. I know, yeah, well, yeah, there's, there's quite a few podcasts and things I listen to that they say it's sort of a... I, I love the fact that the horror genre has got such passionate fans. Yes, it has, definitely. Like, people really do go for it, which is great. Yeah. So, uh, well, let's start with that then. You're obviously a horror fan as well then, but what's your what's your horror origin? Uh, 
my horror origin. Yeah, what was, a, what was your from a kid? What was your horror origin? Origin story. Um, my, my, my earliest memories, I think, um, are from the, the horror double bills that used to be on BBC Two. I don't know if you're too young to remember those. I've, I've just got to get used to the fact that I'm really getting on now. <laughs> but I, I kind of I grew up in the 80s. Yeah. Um, and it was the height of the video nasty kind of debacle. So the, the chances of getting anything gruesome to watch were, were just impossible. Mm. Um, and BBC Two used to show a horror double bill on a Saturday night. And it was really, a, it was kind of a cool thing in the playground at school. Did you watch the horror film on Saturday night? Yeah, yeah. And, and it kind of became a, a bragging rights thing between mates. Um, and it, and it, they, there was um, the Universal films, the um, Hammer films. Mm. And I just started watching them just, just for something to watch initially, but then really got absolutely hooked by just the darkness of them. And yeah. the fact that, you know, that kind of the, the honesty and the spirit of them as well, because I, mean, I think you already mentioned that... Um, horror fans are really passionate and horror filmmakers a lot a lot of them are as well and mm. universal films and hammer films are just i think they still stand up today in fact they, they stand up far stronger than a lot of the horror films that we get at the cinema at the moment i would agree with that i mean i've got a couple of the uh, um the hammer films even the earlier ones you know when they've done the blu-ray restorations yeah they're definitely more rewatchable than some of the films that have come out today some of the shock you know they do the the, the loud noise kind of jump scares yeah, I, I bought, um, my mum and dad bought me for Christmas a few years ago a Hammer, Hammer box set, little coffee shake thing. With oh, that's amazing. And absolutely beautiful, just yeah. so well made. And and that really, that was kind of my, my introduction, my way in. And from there, I, I just started delving and just became a bit of a film nerd mm. and uh, got into 50s B-movies, which again, I think are really, they're, they're really, they're given a bad press and they're just written off as a joke. But some of those films were made with such passion and with such integrity that they really just wanted to tell this story so it wasn't about the start certainly wasn't about the special effects yeah but it was about this might happen watch this um and i think so i started watching all these films and and also reading a lot of books i guess we'll come on to books later but things like day the triffids and war of the worlds which mm. really shaped the, the things that i started to to um, to read and then later write um but I guess the, the thing that was happening at the same time there, we were at the height of the Cold War. Yeah. Not this war, the last Cold War, of course. We could talk, yeah. God, we could talk about the new one now, but yeah. um, back, back with the original Cold War in the 80s. And uh, I think a really defining moment for me was when, um, I think about 1984 or 1985, when Threads was on BBC. I don't know if, you, if you've mm -hmm. come across Threads. I have, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, Threads, I think, still today, is the single most terrifying mm film ever made is just absolutely phenomenal just the, the unflinching horror of it and the honesty of it it's just and, and that was really for me that was a key moment and after that i thought i want to do something relating to horror it's funny you say that especially with like threads and uh, there was an, there's another one there's an american sort of similar one i forget what it's called day after that's it the day after yeah and they come out the 80s and i think like you say about horror there's an honesty but it's about facing up to your fears at the time, yeah. and they're a real reflection, especially in the 80s and sort of in the 60s as well, you sort of see this real reflection of the, the fears of the time and people sort of saying, well, don't run away from it, you know, yeah. face up to it. And you're absolutely right. And and as a, a teenager, or just before my teens in, in the early 80s, you know, it had a massive effect on me, the, the thought that at any moment now, somebody could press a button and four minutes later, we'd all be dead. 
Mm. And it used to be newspaper reports, and unfortunately we're starting to get them again now, about this is how you survive a nuclear war, and the old protect and survive films about you know, put, leaning a door against the wall and put some cushions on it and you'll be okay, honestly. Right. Hide, under, so, hide under your desk and you'll be fine. Absolutely, yeah. Paint, paint your windows white. <laughs> yeah. So it kind of, as, as a kid with a, a really overactive imagination anyway, it kind of just set me off, and, and I was building bum shelters in the back garden and then thinking about what would happen and what would be left, and almost to the point where you actually wanted it to happen so you could try and survive it. And I know that sounds really perverse, but yeah, I guess yeah. it's, you know. No, it's, it's true. I mean, I think that's it with, with horror. It's sort of, um, you know, there was there was a fun sort of thing in the in the 90s when it became trendy. You know, you had like the Wes Craven thing with Scream and it became yeah. a sort of a, a trend and sort of like teen thing. And it, seemed, it lost that, it, it seems to lose that sort of rawness a little bit of what was going on. Yeah, yeah. And it's interesting you talk about the the, uh, the day after there and we're comparing that with threads because that really that was also a pivotal moment for me because I remember the day after being there was a lot of hype around it it was, it was in the press and it was on just before Christmas very very seasonal um, and I remember watching it and thinking yeah that was a bit grim and it was because there were people with their hair falling out and there's blood yeah. and there was vomit and it was you know as a as a ten twelve year old kid whatever I was that really freaked me out. Which one of those interesting things is I, I bet you couldn't you could not broadcast that on on the bbc now without fear no. of some real reprisals from you yeah, know that, that's it but that's kind of the point i was going to go on to make because um, it was on the bbc and it was a big a big uh, media thing everybody should watch this and i remember getting to the end of it and i don't know i don't know if you've seen it if you remember much about it but the central character is a doctor played by a guy called jason robards mm-hmm. and the very last scene is him after the radiation sickness, etc., etc., he's managed to get to the ruins of his old house, and he's in the, and he's in the ashes of his old house, and he found, finds a burnt photograph of him and his wife, or something like that. And it's so corny, so cliched that it just undid everything that happened in yeah. the nights preceding that, because it became just another saccharine American TV um, docudrama thing. Um, but then the contrast with Threads that came, I don't know, six months later was just start because there's there's no happy ending in, in threads and you just got the impression I certainly got the impression as a 14 15 year old whenever it was on that if it hits the fan that that's the way we're going that, that's the end that's it sort of yeah. thing well I think that's another thing about when you look at you know you mentioned hammer and compare it to like universal and I said even today the, the British horror and I think even like a lot of British stories especially satirical stories are a lot more grim. Yes, we're, yeah. we're not we're not averse to sort of, like you say, looking it in the face and going, actually, it is a bit nasty. Yeah, you, you're right, and I've kind of been been caught out by that a couple of times in my writing career. Um, the, the autumn books, in particular, they were they did really well, but there was a kind of a backlash because obviously there's a there's a huge horror market in America, mm. and so Americans started reading these books, and and it's not all gun code and they haven't all got guns and they're not all going to go out and kick in zombie ass and whatever they're actually thinking oh shit we're dead we're, yeah. we're doomed you know nothing we're never going to get out of this so they get darker and darker and i did get quite a quite a, a lot of grief over that i think, also, it's, tr- I think it's true but you even see it today you know whenever um i've sort of lost track of the walking dead sort of thing a little bit yeah but every time they do something and they really go dark the backlash is, oh, that they've gone too far. They've killed off so and so, or it was too grim, or too whatever. And you're a bit like, well, this is a, a messed up post-apocalyptic society. If it didn't go exactly. grim, I think I'd be really disappointed. Yeah, that's right. You'd be even more disappointed because what, what I what I try and do is, um, 
I, I try and make it believable. Try and make the, the, the apocalypse and the post-apocalypse believable. Because I think, and, and make it full of normal people. Because if you can buy into that at that level, then it has more effect, I think. Um, but, but yeah, I think to, it would completely undo everything to give them a happy ending or to suddenly reveal how this happened or why this happened. You just want the darkness. I certainly do. It kind of um, boxed myself into a corner with the, the Hater series because the original trilogy, it, it, it reached, a, in terms of action and gore, it reached a peak at the end of the second book. And in the third book was really the post, post-apocalypse, post so it was what was left after everything else had, had happened. And um, a, lo- a lot of people really loved it, a lot of people really bought into it, but there were also a lot of people thinking, well, shouldn't the action have got higher? Shouldn't it have got bigger? Shouldn't it have been you know, more explosions, more gunfights, etc., etc.? Yeah, but that's, that's, not, that's not the way it goes. I was going to say, that's not how life works. If everything, if yeah. our life you know, constantly worked in a three-act structure, it'd be lovely, but that's not how it works. Oh, God, absolutely right. <laughs> Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, that's the thing. As a, for me, I think you know when we look at like British horror, um, and the Hammer things. And there's a film for that I I watched, very young, probably too young, if I'm perfectly honest. Yeah. Uh, it's called Asylum. Yeah. And it's um um it's not a people. Was it Abacus or um? Um, it's Amicus. Amicus. With, that's uh, it. Sorry. Yeah. Robert Robert Powell in it. Yeah. That's right. And um, that terrified me. Yes. Because all the stories. Like, there's no happiness in that film. No, you're absolutely right, yeah. <laughs> but it's amazing. Um, I, had to tra- I had to track a German version down to get a copy, but it's brilliant, and it, but only because it's so bleak. It is a great film. It's interesting, though, because that's a, an anthology film, isn't it? I think it's it's also, I think horror is of the moment. It's where, where you are in your life when it hits you. Mm. Because we, we um, I, I grew up watching the Hammer House of Horror TV series. Mm-hmm. Which I think is only related to Hammer in in that it's got Hammer in the title because yeah. that, you know they're, they're absolutely atrocious. But as a kid, you know, going back to the playground again, oh, did you watch Hammer House of Horror last night? Yeah, did you see the blood? Did you see this? Did you see that? And it's and it was kind of a it, it was a big event thing. And we went back, uh, my wife and I, because she'd done a similar thing when she was growing up. And we went back and watched them about five or ten years ago, and they were just absolutely atrocious, <laughs> hilariously bad. But it's where you are and what you're doing when you see that that horror film or, or read that that uh, horror novel. I think that's what affects you. Definitely, I think yeah, it's, it's, it's especially when you're um, easily not easily influenced, yeah, easily influenced at a, a certain age. Yeah, it's um, it, you know it embeds in you and it can actually it, take, it can take hold in a usually in quite a, good, a positive way. Weirdly, I, I think it's a positive way. I, I think. I get, often get asked in, in interviews, is there something wrong with you? Why are you really screwed up? Because all you, you write about this horrific stuff, you think about this horrific stuff. And my answer is always that, no, I think that I'm the one who's got his head screwed on because I've got all this stuff out of my system. Yeah. You know, whereas everybody else is still walking around thinking those thoughts, but they haven't got a vent for it. And that's a really good point. It's, quite, it's, a, it's a healthy way of working through it, isn't it? Um... It certainly is. No, I've... I've um, I've killed more than my fair share of people who've got on my nerves through the years in books. Yeah, I was um, when I wrote one of the autumn books. I was working for for a bank in a processing centre, and um, we were we were on twelve months' notice of redundancy. It was my job to kind of redeploy all these people to listen to their woes, and oh. and they did have woes to be fair, but guy they were so annoying at times. Yeah. So I literally because <laughs> we, we'd managed to migrate all the work away, so we were just left with this room full of a hundred people, and. You know, the last three or four months to, to see out our time. And so I sat at my desk with no proper work to do, 
um, writing one of the autumn books and, and uh, literally every other day somebody would wind me up and by the end of that day they'd end up in a chapter horribly killed they're dead <laughs> yeah it's just great therapy really worked well it is and I think like you say like you say some people um, you know put pen, it's all pent up it's all built up inside they end up with heart disease or uh, yes or you know just sort of venting it on their family or whatever but yeah. it's, it is a much better way of doing it um so, so that's sort of like so you've already said that about your autumn book. So, what was your like journey then to becoming a writer? Because you said you worked in a bank. Um... I did, yeah. Um, it, it wasn't through choice. Yeah. I think um, when when I left school, I'd got these great aspirations to be a, a, a film director. I had absolutely no skills whatsoever apart from a head full of stories. And um, this was nineteen eighty eight, eighty nine, something like that. Yeah. So I, the the chances of actually just breaking into film because you love film we're very slim in comparison to today where we've got obviously got the editing that you can do on computers the special mm. effects that you can do you know you, you've got but we, you can film a, a movie quality thing on your phone now whereas i, I was trying to cope with a, a really awful quality vhs big brick camera thing that you had to put on my shoulder and had to have somebody carry the batteries around with me it, was, it just really wasn't working so i ended up as you say working in a bank because i needed to do something with my life um, but I've got these stories still stuck in my head and I couldn't get rid of them. And I thought, if I'm not going to be able to film them, what else can I do? I'd always had a bit of a, of a flair for English, always enjoyed writing. So I just started writing. I just thought I'll, I'll try a screenplay or a short story or, or even a novel. I had a few false starts, but then I kind of set myself some rules because the longer I spent working for the bank, the more I realised that was absolutely not what I wanted to do with my life. Yeah. So, so um I set myself some really simple rules. It was write at least a page a day and n- never go back and, and edit until the draft of the story is finished. And I actually started on, I remember the dates burning to my head, the 1st of January 1994. And I just started following those two rules. And by May that year, I'd written Straight to You, which was my first novel. It was absolutely terrible. It got published, bizarrely, but when I look back at it now, it's absolutely terrible. So I, I rewrote it many years later. But I'll, I'll come on to that in a sec. I was going to say, so that one, um, that was 96, did that one come out? That was 1996 that eventually came out, yeah. yeah. So that was it. So, uh, so it was just a case of just doing. I think that's one of the things that I, I, I've tried, you know, I, I've dabbled and, I've, you know, I've done a couple of short stories and you're always distracted. So it's, it's, for you then, it was just yeah. that case of committing to it then. Yeah, and, and you have to. It was a really, as a writer, it was a hugely important lesson for me that because it, even today, I think a lot, most writers that I meet, are really full of self-doubt mm. you're okay when you're behind the keyboard but when it comes to getting your work out there or when it comes to critiquing your work against other people you you feel pretty bloody useless um, I read other people's books and think wow I wish I could write something like that but what that experience did and what forcing myself to get over the line did was um, it, it made me see that if you get to the end of something then you've then you kind of you you will during the writing process you will work out the issues the doubts and you will produce something worthwhile. And even now, I'm at the moment writing. I'm writing a new trilogy of hater books, and I'm in mm. the middle of hate, hater five at the moment. And for a long time, I was I was kind of plodding through the preparation and, and not really getting there, but just forcing myself to get stuff out. And now the book's almost the first draft of the book is almost complete, and everything seems to have tied together. And I'm just amazingly excited about it. And it's you, you come full circle, and the only way you can do it is by going through all those different stages, all those different feelings. That sounds really pretentious, doesn't it? No, no, I think it is. I mean, that's. I think it's true that you do. We, 
you know you go through a routine everything's a cycle and you like when you do those preparations it's funny you said about um you know you create something and you can be very proud and very happy with the the child that you have created and but the moment you pass out into the world it no longer it's no longer yours and you start to panic that everyone else is going to see it differently absolutely right yeah I mean, you, you do get hardened to it. The more the more of your books that are out there, the more stories that are out there, you get used to people saying, well, that's not for me. But I think it's really easy to dwell on the negative reviews. But if you, for, for me, I know it used to, if I got a one-star review on Amazon, which happened a lot with Autumn because a lot because of the issue I was talking about where people, it wasn't what people were expecting. Yeah, yeah. And um, a, a one-star review would really hit me hard. And mm. I think... What's the point in doing this? And and didn't matter how many five stars or four star reviews the book had got. It, all I'd focus on was that that particular that one star. Review. So it is it is a difficult. It's actually quite a difficult game to be in. Not just the physical act of writing, but the emotional baggage that you carry with it as well. It's and it's that you know, it's one of those weird things that I've always thought about it. For even like self, like you know, authors and uh, writers or artists or directors and all that sort of thing, even actors. You are because you because you, yeah. you are giving of yourself technically, and then to lay it bare yeah. in front of people, it, it is it's pretty brave, in a way because you, yeah. you you know you you are letting you sort of laying yourself there to be criticised. Um, I think if you think about it too much, you probably stop yourself from doing it because yeah, you, you're exactly right. Mm. I I, um, I a few years ago, I kind of lost my mojo a little bit and. Um, really struggled for a while and wasn't writing a lot and um and now that i look back at that period which wasn't a particularly pleasant time um i look at the characters i was writing about and they're all horrible screwed up insular little people which was pretty much what i'd become Mm. it's very weird you do put yourself under the microscope and you do expose yourself i do have a i have this recurring nightmare about walking down the street naked and i'm sure that's where it comes from yeah (laughs) Well, I think it happens. I mean, um, the the comedian um, Tony Hancock, you know, he he. Uh, I remember reading about him in his final years, and he completely broke himself because he never understood why people found him funny. Yeah. And the more he yeah. broke it down, the more he thought about it, the more he didn't understand it, and the sort of it was a downward spiral. Like he he couldn't understand it. Um, yeah. So it's, I mean, like you say, it's it's, it's crazy, but it's it's great because I suppose on the other side, the you know to move away from the darkness, you then meet, like you say, the passionate fans that are all about it and go, oh, this is amazing. I can't wait for your next book. It's amazing. You're doing great stuff. Absolutely. And it's kind of flipped on its head for me a bit now because when I'm um, I'm an, at an event or if somebody comes up and just picks up one of the books that I read that really enjoyed it, then, then that, that makes it worthwhile. Again, sounding really corny and pretentious, but it, it really does. When you find, when somebody says to you, I haven't read a book for years, but I picked up Hater or Autumn, whatever, and I really enjoyed it, then then that makes, again, the self-doubt disappears then. Mm. It is, it's good, and I think it is worthwhile. I mean, I, I really, I have to admit, I, I actually sort of came to you through uh, Wayne Simmons. Um, yeah. And I came across Wayne um, at uh, an SFX event, uh, oh God, probably about six years ago now. I was probably there. I think you were, I think the pair of you were there. Uh, and yeah. I picked up one of his books, and I was like, oh, it looks interesting, I'll give it a go. And then... I'm a big fan. I, you know, I read all this stuff that you guys have put out, um, and I've really enjoyed it. And then I read Hater, uh, and I finished it the other week, and um, I ploughed through it, and it, it's really cool. good. Um, and um, it, it, it's one of those weird things that uh, 
it sort of I think it spoke to me, but you can relate. Like you said, it's an, it appeared in your life. Um, I, I've got a daughter who's four. Yeah. So when you know the main character is talking about getting back to his daughter, and that's what you know drives him on. You know, yeah. just, despite what the position he's actually in, either side he's on. I'm fully behind him. I'm like, yeah, you're damn right. You, you know, it's yeah. You invest. Uh, it, it's interesting. Yeah. Again, that's another book that's got a lot of me in it because when I started writing it, I was that bloke. I've got, um, I've got five daughters, which is, wow. uh, yeah, I know that's the kind of response it always gets. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I, I was that bloke in a tiny little house that was, you know, far too small, working all the hours I could, doing a job I didn't particularly like, and so it was easy to relate. And I, I just thought. It's kind of weird. The audience of Hater is split. Um, half the people really seem to love Danny McCoy, the main character, and the other mm. people find him incredibly annoying. <laughs> but I thought to make the book work and make the series work, he just had to be this really ordinary guy. He just had to be this bloke who, who was like the guy next to you on the bus or on the train or the bloke you just walked past down in the road, it, just to show um, how far things could go. Because yeah. the first, okay. so the first three books just they. Um, they concentrate solely on Danny's story, and I think it's something I'm really proud of. Because I, I, I think it's a, it's a really interesting um, tale that I put him through. And um, I've just got to say one thing though, because this, this does make me laugh, still makes me laugh. I wrote Hater in 2006, and I thought, what's the absolute grimmest job that I could give Danny McCoy? Hmm. So he works in the parking fines processing centre. So. Um, Fast forward 10 years to when I was having that period that I was telling you about that where things weren't working out for me writing-wise and, yeah. and I'd become very isolated and I knew that I needed to get back out. So I applied for proper jobs. I'm still, I'm still doing it actually because actually I, I love the, the buzz and the interaction of people and I didn't realise how much I've missed it. But I've ended up um, responsible for parking fines, not parking fines, um, crossing fines at the uh, Dartford Crossing. Oh, yeah. So, like life imitating art, I've yeah. just gone and done what Dan, what I was criticising Danny for doing all those years again. Well, it's funny actually because many years ago I worked for Transport for London, um, responding yeah. to the responding to the appeal letters for their uh, London congestion charging zone. So I, I again I was responding not directly face to face, but like I say I was doing a similar job. So when I was reading that, I, I could really relate to that sort of yeah. like. You go in, you do the job. It's it's very sort of wearing. So yeah, it's it's, it's really good. I have, I've already ordered the the second two books. Oh, that's cool. Well, I hope you enjoy them. I think um, Danny as a character, he really he really developed for me, particularly in the second book when he's searching for Ellis. So I won't, I won't give too much away, but yeah, it, it really affected me writing that one. It's interesting. I mean, you say that you know the character is you know as an ordinary bloke. It, it it works more. I think I think you know uh, a lot of it has moved more towards that being yeah. genuine. Um, and I won't I won't deny it. I love I absolutely love eighties action films. You know, um, Rambo, Commando, Predator, all those kinds of things. But the thing I always find funny, especially as I'm older, is when you get someone who's supposed to just be a regular Joe, yeah. and then gets thrown into an action situation, but they are Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yes, totally. You know, so you work in an office, yet you're chiselled. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> hey, some of us are. No, I'm not. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, I know, and I just, yeah, I, I really like to kind of turn that on its head and, and make the the the, uh, the main characters these ordinary joes. I want, I, I write about ordinary people stuck in extraordinary situations, and I find that that that's what works for me. Mm. It, people seem to buy into it. It's really good. It's easier to relate to, I suppose. Yes. Yeah. Well, you, yeah, you identify, don't you? You feel that you're there. Yeah. Okay, so let's um, so 
that's you sort of up to date, really. I mean, I think, you know, you, the one thing I was curious, I wanted to ask about with, with regards to that then, was the film Autumn and the uh, potential now, because I've done, I've done my research, um, of the TV series for the Hater books. Yeah, it's kind, it's kind of a, it's a long story. It's a decade-long yeah. story so far. Oh, what, what happened was, I um, after I published, straight after Straight to You was published, um, I thought that it would be, that, that was it. I'll be sorted then, you know, life of a, a millionaire playboy because yeah. all the texts will come ro- rolling in, etc., etc. No, they didn't. And I'm actually sitting in my, my uh, makeshift office in my garage now and I can still see a box of the original run of Straight to You books from where <laughs> I'm sitting. Um, so when I came to write the second book, which was Autumn, uh, well, when I finished it, I thought, what do I do with it? Do I go down the same road again or do I try and do something different? And that was right at the start of, of self-publishing and when the internet was really taking off. And I just thought, I'll give it away. Mm. I had nothing to lose. And I thought the most important thing for me was to build up a readership. So I started giving Autumn away. And literally, to begin with, it was so um, uncom- it was so, so simple, so uncomplicated. People would send me an email saying, like the look of that book, and I'd just send them a Word document. It was very, very basic. And obviously that improved over time with Kindle, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. But, but yeah, it kind of caught, caught things just at the right time because not a lot of people were giving stuff away as opposed to now where, you know, everybody wants to give you their free book. Yeah. Uh, and ebooks were really just starting to take off and get a foothold. People were, were reading stuff online. Um, so, so that, and at the same time, writing about zombies as they started to come back into vogue with uh, 28 Days Later, etc. Mm. It just, it was kind of like the perfect storm and, it, and it, it really took off and it had something like half a million downloads in a very short period of time. Then started writing the sequels to Autumn um, and I thought, well, if people have read the first one, then maybe they'll be prepared to pay for the second one. And to my amazement, they did. Yeah. And it just, it kind of snowballed a little bit. And I'd got uh, four autumn books for it and a couple of other standalone novels. And uh, I thought, I'd, I was earning kind of half an income. And I thought, right, well, all I need to do then is write the same number of books again and try and keep them selling at that level. And I can do this full time. So I, I started working on another book and I wrote Hater. Mm-hmm. Very happy with it. Didn't think much of it. Self-published it through, well, well say self-published. I, I, I started my own little independent press, Infected Books. So I published it through Infected Books. And then suddenly, out of the blue, um, after it had been out maybe two or three months, I had a, an email. I thought it was somebody just playing a joke on me. I thought it was one of my mates. But it said, uh, I represent this production company in Los Angeles. We'd like to talk to you about film rights. And I thought, yeah, whatever. Yeah. Um, emailed them back and we set up a phone call. And uh, the phone call, it, it turned out to be a guy called Mark Johnson, who was, um, he, he actually is the executive producer of Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. He, he won an Oscar for producing uh, Rain Man, and at the time he was producing the Chronicles of Narnia films. Wow. And he was, he was on the set of one of the Chronicles of Narnia films um, <laughs> in New Zealand, yeah. phoning me up and... and um, and I, it was kind of a, this weird collision of worlds because I'd got this, this superstar producer on the phone and I was trying to sort the kids out and stop the dog from barking <laughs> and etc, etc. Et and, and he just dropped the bombshell in the middle of the conversation. Uh, we really want to make a film with Peter and we'd like Guillermo del Toro to direct it. Yeah, so it's a hell of a name to drop in the conversation. Uh, yeah, okay, yeah. <laughs> just Let me just sit down for a minute here. Um, but for, for various reasons, in, including... The Hobbit, because Del Toro got sidelined onto doing that. Yeah, um, it, it didn't happen. He was he was going to produce it. He gave me a great blurb for the book, which I've dined out on years for years, which is great. 
Um, he was going to produce it, and it was set up with J.A. Bayona, the guy that made The Orphanage and The Impossible. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's currently making Jurassic World 2. I think so, not, yeah. Not that we really need a Jurassic World 2, but hey. No. <laughs> um, so it was all set up, ready to go, and I think the script wasn't quite there, and it kind of fell through. Mm. At, at the same time as getting that approach, randomly I had an approach from a very small uh, Canadian company saying, can we buy the film rights to Wartham? And I thought, well, these two approaches are at different ends of the scale. Uh, if I if I agree to both of them, I've got a yeah, chance. Yeah. And, and made a good go of it, but we're very limited in terms of the, the scope. Oh. So yeah, I hate to kind of, it slipped off. Sorry, Dave, it's breaking up a little bit there. Until, That's it. Uh, can you hear me okay? Yeah, yeah, sorry, it slipped out a bit there. Let's try it yeah. again. That's right. Okay, so, um, yeah, the, the, the hate adaptation kind of slipped into development hell for a while. Yeah. They kept renewing the rights, and, and, and that's okay, because, you know, you get a, a check for a few quid every other year, and, mm. and uh, it's worth doing, but I just got frustrated that I didn't think, I think thought the initial traction had gone, so the chances of it being made were, were you know, reducing every time I was renewing the option. Yeah. So when it came up again, I'd been contacted by a guy called Ed Barrett, who's a producer based in Newcastle, who's got a, a really great reputation, and he'd, he'd read and really loved the books, and uh, he wanted to do something different with it, and I thought, you know, why not? So agreed a deal with um, with Ed, and at the moment he's shopping it around and, and uh, just trying to get it off the ground. We did get very, very close just before Christmas to, to sign in uh, for a TV adaptation, as you said, which is, is, is not happening at the moment, but it, we're still in active development on it. I think it's, it's a story that sort of suits TV, and as they say, it's the golden age of TV, so... Certainly is, yeah. It would be great to see it. It would be fantastic. Well, I'm writing the, the, a second trilogy of books. Yeah. Based on conversations that I had with Ed, because we started talking about a TV adaptation. And the first story, as I said, the first three books, is, is purely Danny McCoy's story. And kind yeah. of the end of the world is going on in the periphery and in the background. But there's a hell of a lot going on. And I thought it would be really interesting to kind of explore that a little bit. So the, the fourth book in the series takes the story back to the beginning, and that comes out in December. It's called One of Us Will Be Dead by Morning, which is kind of an, an origin thing again. Yeah. But then the, the following on from that, the, the second and third books in this trilogy, so the fourth and fifth books, are going to wrap in and around Dogblood and Them or Us and give mm-hmm. kind of the, the other view to what Hanny, um, Danny's doing and what's going on in his world. And it's a great thing, and that's, a, that's the thing, that, you know, that these stories and others is... Um... They, they sometimes may focus in on a single or a small group of characters, but these events are clearly going to be worldwide, so there's a whole yeah. heap of stories to tell, really. So many different scenarios. Yeah, it's been absolutely fascinating, because to, to write the fifth book, as I said, that's, that's what I'm working on at the moment, I went back and read Dogblood, the first sequel to Hater, because it, it the, both the, this book, both Dogblood and the other half, the fifth book, um, take place at exactly the same time. Mm. And it's been really interesting because I'm looking at the things, the events that I wrote about in Dogblood in a completely different light now because mm. I'm talking stuff that went on in the background to trigger the events that Danny got caught up in. And then likewise, talking about the the way that the new characters are, are surviving 
I mean, or trying to deal with the events that maybe Danny's triggered off. It's it's really interesting. Yeah, so they're definitely intertwined and stuff, and that's I find that fascinating. So, do you do you have like a? Uh, I imagine if you've got like a timeline written out of like it started here and here's all the events and how they sort of interweave and that sort of thing. Or is it all in your head? Um, it's a little bit of both. Um, for for some some books, I will write down a full timeline. Mm-hmm. When I was writing the autumn books in particular. Because one of the key things about autumn is, let's go back, one of the things that really annoys me about most zombie books and zombie films is that the zombies, they don't change. There's no there's no character development no there. No evolution, so, yeah. Yeah, so the zombies in book one, page one, are the same as the zombies in the final book on the last page. Yeah. And I wanted to do something different with autumn. And uh, I don't know how far you've got in the book yet, but they start off as very dumb, lumbering hulks of meat we're really not much in the way of senses. You know, they're walking into walls, they're just getting in the way and they can become, you know, they're quite laughable in some way. Yeah. But then as the story develops, they start to regain their senses Mm. and a little bit of brain processing power. But then there's a great paradox as well because as their, their, their memories and their brains are recovering... This is complete bullshit, it really is. This would, this would never happen in a million years, but <laughs> it's that cool. Um, as their, their, their brains and their memories are starting to redevelop and strengthen, so their physical bodies are starting to deteriorate. So the only way that they can display the emotions that they're beginning to feel again is through aggr- aggression and, and hatred towards the survivors. So, yeah, I, I've got this very definite timeline for the living dead throughout the books. Yeah. And it was important to know when all of the, the novels and the short stories that I've written, when they happened, what the bodies would be doing at that particular time and where different groups of survivors would interact and cross. So I've got a, a proper, it looks like, a, you know, those things you see on the wall in CSI? Yes. With, um, pictures and bits of rope connecting them and things like that. I've got something like that for autumn. See, that, that's what I was picturing in my head. And I'm, I'm quite pleased to hear that you've done that. That's sort of, uh, <laughs> that's exactly what I was thinking. Um, no, I'm, yeah, I'm really enjoying it. It is a good book. I'm, I'm, it's uh, it's one of those things, like you said about, um, about giving it away free. It's that sort of, you know, like a, like a drug. You gave the first hit yeah. away free, and then you've got to pay for the rest. But I'm, I'm, exactly it, yeah. but I'm definitely in for the ride on both Hater and Autumn now. So oh, good stuff. Um, I'll be I'll be reading those. That's really good. I mean, like, yeah. So your your insight was really why I sort of contacted you then. So the the gist of this show is. I wanted to have a think about um, horror books, horror novels, horror writing in in the twentieth century, yeah. um, and your your sort of like perspective as a writer. Um, so as you said, you, as you emailed me, you've done your homework. <laughs> um, so uh, yeah, what 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 books were you reading then as a kid? What were you you know talk about films? But what were you what were you reading as a kid? Well, the the two books that that really did it for me when I was very young. And again, you, you said that you were watching films too young. I think I was reading these books too young. But uh, Day of the Triffids is the mm-hmm. key one that I always mention. And War of the Worlds is the other one. And both both for similar reasons, I think, is why, why they affect me so much. Um, Day of the Triffids, if, if you like describe it to somebody, it just sounds ridiculous. Yeah. So there's these carnivorous seven-foot-tall plants, um, and everybody's blind, and the plants are walking around, and they're... And it just sounds stupid, but the way that John Wyndham wrote that book, it's just so believable, mm. so absolutely terrifying. To to my mind, that's just it's just my favourite book ever. I think Brian Aldiss, another author, described it them as cosy catastrophes, and I just love the way that he made this incredible world changing event 
feel so ordinary and so believable. And as an 11-year-old kid, um, I don't know how that book got into the library of my junior school, but I was really <laughs> pleased it did because as an 11-year-old kid, it just totally, it, it just blew my mind. <coughs> Excuse me. I have to admit that the uh, yeah uh, badly badly managed school libraries do seem to uh, crop up quite a lot with people getting access to books things like that. I know I yeah. I, I actually got a copy of, of Pet Cemetery from my school library. Oh, perfect. And perfect. So, yeah, clearly no one really knew what it was about to, or even cared. Yeah. Similarly, I had uh, War of the Worlds, the other book I mentioned in my school library, and um, it's. When you, when you read that book now, it's easy to say, oh, it's quite a straightforward, quite a trivial story. And yeah, of course, bacteria, they should have seen that come in, so on and so on. But mm. you just have to put, imagine that you are in the late 1800s and you've got hold of that book. It just must have been absolutely terrifying. Oh, yeah. No, it's, it's uh, that's one of the things I really enjoy. When I go back and read some of this, um, you know, the early stuff, even like Lovecraft and um, those, yeah. you, if you, you read it from the perspective of someone from that era... Is you know because you read something now you go why were they so offended or why were they so you know worried about it? But yeah. Different, different sense yeah, of you're issues. Right. Yeah, yeah, but um, yeah, com- completely. So, so that's really what what triggered me off. It was classics like that, and and then I got into um, Stephen King as everybody does, mm. and then more particularly into James Herbert. Yes, because I love James Herbert. It, Really, the the British perspective on things that, that got me, and um, the the Herbert book that really affected me most of all was Domain, the second Rats book. I've, I've just finished it um, in February. Yes, I've, I've got the last one to read. I loved it. I love the the Rats series is brilliant. Well, D- Domain it, it completely redefined what I thought you could do with a horror novel because mm. from page one to the last page, it is just it's just hideous. It's just gore. It's just hopelessness, and it's absolutely superb. Um, it's the only book still to this day that I've ever finished reading and then gone back to page one and started again. Yeah. I was really, I was very fortunate and very honoured a few years back um, when James Herbert released his last novel, Ash, mm-hmm. and I got to host a couple of events when he was publicising it. He only did two events, one in Birmingham and one in London. And just, just by chance, I was contacted and, and asked if I'd host them and interview him which was just incredible as a writer to be able to have that, that experience. And just, it felt just like I was talking to him, just having a chat and asking him about writing and what I should be doing, et cetera, et cetera. And just completely forgot the fact there were a few hundred people listening in. Yeah. <laughs> you just entertain yourselves. I'm having a chat. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I did. The first time I met him, I, I, I went there. I've still got my, my really, my yellowed tatty copy of domain from, from the eighties. Yeah. Um, the spine's absolutely knackered, the cover's all ripped, but I, I took it with me and I gave him the big spiel about how this was like a monumental book for me and it, it made me do what it made me want to do what I do today and if it hadn't been for him then none of my books would have happened and so on and so on. And I asked him if he'd sign it for me. And he just looked at it and he said, Yeah, good book that one. It was so <laughs> dismissive. It was it was brilliant. Um but yeah, just just a, a phenomenal book. I think he's. I love. I'm a massive fan of James Herbert. I've actually. I'm. I'm three books away from completing the collection. I have to admit. So, ah. but the one there's there's two books for me for James Herbert in a similar experience. Um, it, one's haunted. Yeah. And I've yeah, got. Like, like, yeah. I've got it in like three editions. It's. I'll go back yeah. to that book so many many times. It. it in, I, up until then, I'd read a lot of um, like you say, gory horror and um, American horror. And then I read yeah. this book, and it, it, it's the first sort of like almost like a slow burn ghost story. It is, isn't it? Yeah. And it really got under my skin. Um, 
and it's amazing. I've gone back to that sort of, but then to follow up with the Ghost of Sleeth, um, which is another amazing book. So yeah, you know, James Herbert is a massive, massive. Um, I'm a huge fan of James Herbert. I think he's amazing. Yeah, he's absolutely lovely guy. Really, he he just what was what was cool for me watching him as a writer. You know, regardless of, of whether you like his books or not, just as a professional, he was amazing. He had, you know, when I, when I got to the the venue, my signings. There's a handful of people, and I'm happy with that. If I've got a queue of two, I think I've I've won. Yeah. But James Herbert, he'd got queues literally around the block in the, one of the old Waterstones in in Birmingham. They, they were we had to phone the, the the branch so that I could get inside to present the thing because there were just so many people out there but that guy he stayed and he spoke to every single one every single person who was there and he signed every single book the very last person who uh, who came that night he waited it was about half past 11 at night and he'd got a suitcase full of books and James Herbert despite the fact that he I think he might have been unwell and he, he was in his 70s he stayed there and he engaged with this guy and he signed every single book and he just yeah if it, it was a, a life lesson for me if you want to be a, a professional follow James Herbert yeah yeah he yeah, sounds like a real class act I mean definitely definitely um, but it means stuff I mean that's the thing it's about because the fans like you say they're the ones that um, you know they, they they want to do that and it's sort of it's part I suppose it's sort of like part and parcel of it I mean I I uh, um, one of my favourite, more recent writers, Joe Hill. Uh, I met him. Yes. Um, I think it was last year, or the year before. But he, he, you know, big big queue, and you could see there was there was people there that wanted to meet him for the things he's done a lot. You know, a lot of his books, some of the comics he's written are really really good. Um, yeah. And then all halfway through, he was doing a talk, and he was talking about his latest book, Fireman. Um, yeah. Someone stood up and said, "Oh, so uh, you know, what what's your dad doing next?" <laughs> And you could, you could, there was, I was a bit like, oh god. Um, but he he completely took it in his stride, and he says, oh well, he's doing this, and and then talked for like you know five ten minutes, and then moved on, and he just thought, yeah, class act, you know. Absolutely right, yeah. That's really good. So, so what else? So it sounds to me though that you you're very much into that sort of uh, apocalyptic horror, um, you know, definitely yeah. end of the world, end of society kind of stuff. I do love that. I think um, at, at heart, I'm a people watcher. I just mm. like, you know, I, I like kind of lighting a blue touch paper and then stepping away and, and watching <laughs> the fallout. Um, I don't do that. I was going to say, dinner parties with you must be uh, interesting. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but I think the reason that I kind of focus on, on the apocalypse is because I get really frustrated. I am a miserable git, an old man, and, and I do... I, I do find that society these days, just, there are just so many things that, that wind me up. You know, the cult of celebrity, the fact that most people can't function unless they're online and people walking around with their phones and not looking up, just it's an endless stream of things. But to my mind, when the apocalypse comes, all of that crap is stripped away yeah. and you've just got people reacting as people would. And for me, I think that's absolutely fascinating, just getting rid of all of the bullshit that we surround ourselves with and just really just going on instinct, pure gut instinct. And that's why I guess I, I'm so hooked on the apocalypse. And I, and I am. I make no no apology for that. No, I, no. Yeah, it, it's quality. Um, in fact, another couple of books that I've, I've, uh, I've enjoyed recently, um, one by Conrad Willie. Oh, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. That, that's the most beautifully written, but grimmest book I've ever read. Why did I enjoy it so much? And I, I can't. I, I, I make it sound like I want to see society crumble. I don't. I really <laughs> don't. But I do find it fascinating to think about what might be. Well, well that's the thing. Though. It's, it's that what if, isn't it? It's the true. It's sort of like say it's, mm. stripping, it's stripping us down to our bare essentials and seeing who's left standing, sort of thing. Yeah. Um, because that, that is the other side of it, because I'd want to be the one left standing. Yeah. So that's that question then. So that fascinates you, but what terrifies you then? So what scares you when you read these books? What gets into your skin and, and you know, or does anything? I think, if I'm completely honest, and this might sound like a cop-out answer, but books and films don't tend to scare me. Mm. What scares me is is, um, is people. Not everybody. Yeah. But uh, look at some of the things that... that go on in the world today and I think that that you know a lot of the stuff that's happening is far grimmer than anything I would make up there are some truly horrific things going on out there and and, and most of it because people just don't give a damn because there's a really weird paradox I think at the heart of, of any society and, and that's that people are, are going to bind together but they're always going to want more than everybody else mm. and I know that if it came down to it if it was a question of my survival or my children's survival, then I know that I would do whatever I had to do to, to survive and to, to help my kids survive. And that, that's quite a terrifying prospect because, you know, that's that, that's really, that's that's why we're here. That's what we're doing. We, we, we're trying to survive and it's always at the expense of somebody else. Well, it's true. I mean, a, f- a friend of mine uh, and I, we, we, you know, we've, we've got this, a weird game that whenever you go to somewhere you apply a survival rating to it yeah so if it was the end of the world what survival rating would this place get um, and it's, it's a joke you know you do, you do it between each other but <laughs> in the back of my head I'm still doing it with a serious level of calculation yeah um, I, I completely understand that and you, you joke about it but it, it just happens um, I wrote a story a few years ago called The Cost of Living mm. and it's it's about a, a family in their house and it's and um, yeah it's, it's the end of the world zombie apocalypse etc etc as usual but it's actually based in in my house in the development where we live and we moved here i think five years ago next month and i had to stop myself because as we were walking around the place i was genuinely checking it out for zombie preparedness <laughs> yeah you just can't help it no like i say it's, it always starts a joke but like i say it's uh and i'm sure more people than ever do it these days yeah yeah. Um, it's, 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 yeah, it's definitely in the uh, the zeitgeist. I think my, my survival technique for when it does hit the fan is just look at, make, just try and watch, observe what everybody else is doing, and do the exact opposite. So whichever way everybody else is going, I'm running the other way. Yeah. Because I think there's there's a lot there's a the, if you want to survive these horrific scenarios that we're all writing about and making films about, really all you need to do is find somewhere quiet, get yourself a decent stash of food and just sit in the dark for six months and then come back out and just reclaim whatever's left. Yeah. That, that doesn't make for the most exciting story or film. <laughs> I don't know. I'm sure that's a, it's a possible challenge to see if you could do that. But I know what you mean. I'll give it a go. Yeah. So, um, that sort of thing, because I, I really thought about this, what sort of authors sort of stood out to me. Um, and I think you're right about Stephen King is the granddaddy. I don't think anyone who ever talks about horror and doesn't mention Stephen King seems to have missed out. I oh, think. yeah. Yeah, um, yeah I mean, the other one for me that really um, blew me away when I was young is I came across a copy of um, 
It was just one of the volumes of the Books of Blood by yes, Clive Barker. Barker. Yeah. Um, and again, it was that thing of like, I can't believe you can get away with this. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's another one I think. His imagination. He's just he just lets run riot. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, I, I need to to read more Barker, but I remember not in the 80s not being particularly um, not reading very many books at the time, but seeing Hellraiser. Mm. And just even just seeing the film adaptation of that, it kind of opened my eyes, and I thought, you know, did did that just happen? Did that did that just get made? It's just it's phenomenal. It's yeah. I mean, that first film. I mean, it's a, it's a franchise with with most definite diminishing returns. But that first oh, film no, no. is yeah. uh, is is so so good. It's one of my favourite horror films. Yeah, um, what, one and two I can stomach, and three I don't mind if I've had a few drinks. But after that, yeah, you just don't go, just don't go there, do you? No, uh, yeah, I've, I've sort of, I, I trailed off. I think I've watched a couple of them when drunk, like you say. But yeah. even, even for three, when um, when Pinhead sort of has his head poking out of the concrete pillar, it yes. it just seems a little too daft at times to be taken it seriously. Does. It does. Um, so, right, so if, if you were gonna if you were gonna recommend sort of uh, five books, twentieth century horror books, then to, to the listeners. Um, the David Moody recommendations what would they be well I think I've already mentioned a few of them but yeah. I'm going to repeat them again so Day of the Triffids would be number one mm-hmm. um, my second book I think will be I Am Legend Richard Matheson excellent book because that is just absolutely superb I did quite a, a lot about it on my website last year watching all the the terrible film adaptations actually yes. the Vincent Price one is okay but the other film adaptations are just awful. But it was just a good excuse to to um, to read the book again, and it's just yeah, absolutely amazing. So influential that book. I think it just it's not just vampire stories. It's it's you can see the roots of Night of the Living Dead. You can see the roots of a whole host of horror classics in there. I agree. And it's quite a quick read as well. So it's a really you know it's not a, an intimidating book to pick up really. No, no, not at all. Yeah, um, Domain would be the third one. I mentioned yeah. James Domain. Um, Conrad Williams is one, which I think has not been as widely read as it should have. Absolutely superb book. Mm. Uh, and my final pick uh, would be a book by a friend of mine, Joseph DeLacy, uh, a book called Meat, which is another book which I think didn't find the audience that it deserved. It's been it's been out a couple of times, but it, it's just an absolutely phenomenal book. I don't want to say too much about it because it will ruin the central conceit, but it's. You, you won't want to eat a beef burger again after reading it. Yeah, oh, funny enough, I've got I've got hit that and uh, garbage man on my to, on my uh, reading pile, so I have got both of them. So they are they, they are on my shelf to read. Um, I, I enjoyed both of them. Uh, garbage man less so, but but meat um, just it, it just blew me away. Superb. I will, I'll get round to that as well then. Excellent, good recommendations, and I'm glad that James Herbert is on your on your recommendations. That's uh, it's, it's, yeah. It's, it's, it's a warm feeling inside every time I get to talk about James Herbert. Oh, he was just a complete class act. Yeah. yeah he he, um, he insulted me, he corrected me all the time, but it, it was just such a really nice guy. The, the saddest thing is he, he um, I, I gave him a pile of books. I thought, you've got to change your arm. So I gave him a nice, nicely made up pile of books and a letter just saying how much he'd, he'd influenced me, etc., etc. And um, he, he's... About a year later, he sent me a letter saying, thanks for the books. I will get around to reading them one day. Starting a new novel tomorrow. And then about a week later, I was just saw the news that he passed away. And you thought, oh, what, oh. What, if, what, what would he have gone on to produce? You yeah, just can't what, imagine. That's it, the story that was never told. Exactly, yeah. 
I'll admit that with some of his books, I kind of have the, the hammer horror feeling that I was talking about earlier when you go back many years later and reread something and you think, well, maybe that's not as frightening as I thought. Or, yeah. You know, um, Survivor is, is one. I was going to mention that one, yeah. Um, have you seen the film version? I haven't, no. I keep meaning to check that out. It's worth seeing. It's an interesting... It's it is. Thing, it? Yeah, it's Robert Pattinson. It's worth seeing. It's an interesting adaptation. Um, it's very much of its pit, of its time, but it's it's if you can find it, it's worth seeing. Um, he and I bonded a little bit over bad film adaptations of your books because I was talking to him about Rats, and his experience was was very similar. Because I don't know if you've seen that a very 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 bad Italian version uh, adaptation of Rats. I have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, with with dogs with um, fur jackets on. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's great. yeah, he's got some interesting adaptations. I, I, you know, I, I, um, like I say, Survivor. That yeah, the rats, uh, and then Haunted had an adaptation as well, which I actually yeah. quite enjoyed. Um, but again, as like I say, the, the, if if someone did the rat series properly, yes, it, you know, I think it'd be amazing. It'd be terrifying. It would be absolutely amazing. I think that the, the technology's there to do it, and I'm sure at some point somebody will. Hmm. Yeah, well, one day when this superhero bubble bursts, we'll get to the hopefully horrible rise of the service a little bit. You know, I really hope it's not long now. <laughs> I will admit I'm a big superhero fan, but even I'm a little jaded at this point. I, the problem is we're so suckered in by, by the studios and, and by the marketing machines that time after time I've just found myself sitting in the cinema. <coughs> excuse me. I'm sitting in the cinema seat, seeing the DC or the Marvel logo come up and thinking, I've done it again. Yeah. And then two and a half hours later, you think, oh, I've just watched the same film again with a different costume. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm getting that a little bit at the moment. Um, but this year, I'm really excited. The, 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 you know, the Stephen King, The Dark Tower coming out. Yeah. And then yeah. um, the big one for me, the other book I was going to mention, which I didn't get around to, actually, is It. Stephen King's It. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I love the Tim Curry uh, <clears throat> 1990 version, but this new one looks brilliant. It does, actually, doesn't it? Yeah, so I'm really looking forward to that. And let's hope it is because you know King's had his his fair share. You know, fortunately he's had some some great films made of his books, but he's also had some pretty terrible ones made as well. Yeah, yeah, you got to hit the rough with the smooth, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Dave, it's been amazing talking to you, and I don't want to hold you up too much longer. Cause it's, it's, That's uh, cool. been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Uh, where can uh, where can the listeners find you? And um, do you want to promote any? You've got books coming out this year, haven't you? I have, yeah. So the best place to start, if you want to read about my stuff, is www.davidmoody.net, and you can find all my social media stuff um, from there. And there's a list of all my books and a page full of recommendations, films and books that I, I recommend, and all kinds of junk on there. Brilliant. Um, I have got, as I said, Hater 4, uh, with the snappy title, One of Us Will Be Dead By Morning, coming out in December. Which I'm really looking forward to. A good Christmas present for everyone. Absolutely, yeah. What better way on Christmas Day than to curl up and read about 15 people um, beating each other up and killing each other on a deserted island? That's it. Well, it's uh, isn't that what Christmas is about, actually? Just getting around 15 people in a room and then trying not to beat each other up. Do you know what? You're not too far off the <laughs> yeah. Excellent. Well, I will look forward to that, and I'll—I'm I'll, uh, definitely going to get stuck into the other hater books soon over the summer. I'm, on, I'm, on, I'm going on holiday soon. They're on my uh, to take with me pile. Superb. Well, if you if you get through them all and you still want more, 
drop me a line and we'll make sure that a copy of the new one gets to you. Oh, definitely, I will do. Thank you very much, Dave. It's been really good speaking to you. And uh, Thanks, I'll, I'll let you know when the show goes out. Yes, please. That'd be great. Thank you. All right. Cheers, mate. Thank you. See ya. Bye-bye. Bye. Okay, well, there was the great interview with uh, the fantastic David Moody. Some really good bits in there. It was a great interview, really good fun. Um, and he's a great guy. And as I said at the start of the show, he's uh, donated a book to give away um, one of his books. So, better think of a question. I'm going to cross-pollinate. Okay, so it's going to be a Dave Moody book. But the question is, Howard Phillips Lovecraft? What... Rhode Island town, city, was he born, uh, lived and died in? Okay, I want you to contact me uh, with which town did H.P. Lovecraft live, die, was born in, in Rhode Island? Okay, it's mentioned in the show, but we mentioned it easily elsewhere. Um, the question again, in which town did, in which town was H.P. Lovecraft born, lived and died in? Okay, contact me on Twitter, at 20th Century Geek, uh, or on Facebook, Facebook slash uh, 20th Century Geek, or contact me through email, 20thCenturyGeek at gmail.com. I will also be putting the question out onto Twitter uh, and on Facebook to see if any of the listeners want to contribute that way. So, hope to hear from you, and good luck. Uh, that book should hopefully wing its way to someone very soon. Uh, it's been a good show. I've quite enjoyed this. Looking into Lovecraft has been really good fun. And there is one final thing I really need to highlight. So, I wanted to let you know about a campaign I'm taking part in. It's called Hashtag Two Pods a Day. It aims to introduce podcast listeners to two independent podcasts every day for the month of August. We hope to give visibility to some of the great indie podcasts that you probably haven't heard of. Hashtag Two Pods a Day encourages you to listen to more. Listen to indie podcasts. Find more shows like mine by following... Hashtag two pods a day on Twitter and Facebook. Uh, and also, don't forget, hashtag BritPodScene as well. So go out and find out about that. More good British podcasts out there. Uh, I'll just mention a couple of nerdy ones as well. So there's Nerdify, uh, Jack and the Geeks Talk, uh, Nerd Chatting, uh, TV in Space. Uh, there's Rough Giraffe, uh, Ready Steady Cut. Um, so many. Uh, Stacey's Parlour is a good one. Hopefully I'll uh, be joined by Stacey at some point in the near future. So please go check them out. And uh, thanks very much. And I shall see you next time when we will be talking to the next author, Peter McLean, uh, author of the Drake series. And he has also donated a signed book uh, that will be given away on the next show. Okay. Talk to you soon, guys. Yeah.